Well, hello, welcome back to Come Follow Me with Fair. We got a fancy new studio. Hopefully, picture's better. Hopefully, the sound will be better. I think we're a tiny bit echoey today still, but working on it. Hopefully, that'll be some good improvements for us. The only downside, folks in the comments who love my cats, the cats are at home. No more cats. Sorry, their YouTube career is over, but I am here. Happy to talk with you about questions from the New Testament that your evangelical friends might think of or that might come up, kind of based on the passages as we are going through the Come Follow Me readings, trying to help you understand where they're coming from so that you might be able to have a better conversation with them and share some of the gifts of our faith. Our scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, and it goes like this. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it would be better for him if a millstone were hanged around his neck and that he were drowned. Tough, tough words from Jesus and really powerful words, especially if you have ever been in the position where you were the little one <laughs> being led astray by someone else. Um, we're actually going to broaden out the topic a little bit and not just talk about when things go wrong towards children, but just in a more general sense, when things go wrong in our Latter-day Saint church or in an evangelical church, when someone's behavior is completely out of line, they refuse to repent, they refuse to get things back in order, and some kind of church discipline has to happen. So that's what we're talking about today. I want to say from the start, um, just speaking for myself, not speaking for fair, not speaking for the church, I know that sometimes discipline in the church has not gone well for some people. Some people have not gotten the outcomes that they hoped for. There's a lot of pain around this issue. I just want to acknowledge that. I've heard many of your stories. Um, my my heart is, is with you. This is a hard, hard, hard topic. Thank you for being brave and going along with me on this. We're not going to pretend like everything has happened perfectly all throughout history, but here we are. So... Prior to watching this series, if you have heard my name before, it is probably because I talk a lot about sexual abuse, um, sexual abuse cases in our church and the evangelical churches. If you've watched the video on my conversion story, which is linked in where all the videos are, I don't know where to, I don't know where to point. It's linked up there somewhere, I think. Um, you know that I have a lived experience um, in sexual abuse in an evangelical church, the aftermath and how that was dealt with. I talk about that a little bit in my convergence story, not a story for kids, but if you are a teenager or an adult and want to hear more about that, that's where you find that. Um, I am also aware I have a very particular experience in a very particular time and place and that influences how I think about these issues, especially as it relates to evangelicals. I think it's okay to tell you that bias going in. My opinions on this are um, based on the experiences that I had, just like anybody else's would be. Try to be as fair as possible. You'll let me know in the comments if I'm not. Um, we will start with, what does church discipline look like for evangelicals? The answer, you if you've been watching these episodes, you know by now, the answer is, well, it depends. Um, 
we have talked about how um, like evangelical is not a it's not a denomination it's not there's no central authority um there is no membership for churches to join in some kind of evangelical association that they must be in to call themselves evangelical any church in theory can call themselves evangelical no matter what their denomination is no matter what their other various memberships in different groups are so it's really hard to nail down exactly like what an evangelical is for our purposes we're just saying any church that calls themselves that we're going to take their word for it that they are that um, there's nobody to police the term evangelical it's really it's different in our church right um if a new if a new church wanted to call themselves the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints um, in exactly the same way that we do, there would be some pushback on that, right? We, Someone in the church would be saying, you cannot do that. It's not that way in the evangelical world. That's not a, a title that um, gets policed in the same way. Um, anybody can open a church in your town and they might call it Journey Church or Cross Point Church or some such thing. Um, and, and they're probably evangelicals with churches named like that. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit to find out if they are or if they aren't. Um, having said that, it should kind of click in your mind. It's almost impossible for me to fully answer the question, what does church discipline look like in evangelical churches? There are hundreds of different answers to that. We're going to look at some trends, knowing that there are a lot of exceptions. Um, so, as you know, we've talked about here in the past, evangelicals are Protestants, and at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, like way back with Martin Luther time, church discipline was considered part of the mark of a true church. The Catholic Church at this time had really gone off the rails, and church leaders did not offer appropriate discipline or correction to that. So the reformers, the the people who were creating the Protestant church in essence, they didn't, didn't know that's what they were doing all the time, but that's what they were doing. The reformers named three marks how you could know a true church. And they said the preaching of pure doctrine, the administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of church discipline to correct faults. But it has been a long time since that has been true in the broader Christian world. That last part, um, the exercise of church discipline to correct faults, for the most part, that doesn't really happen anymore. Um, so there's a magazine, Christianity Today, sort of the premier evangelical magazine. Um, they have a quote that I think sort of sums this up. It says, today church discipline is feared as the mark of the false church, bringing to mind images of witch trials and scarlet letters, public humiliations, and damning excommunications. That article is about two years old. So evangelicals are, are pretty suspicious these days of church discipline. They don't see it as a mark of a true church. They see it as the mark of a, a controlling false church. Not all of them, but a lot of people who are sitting in the pews, that's how they see it. So there's a group called um, 
Lifeway Research. They're the research arm of the Southern Baptist Church. Not all Southern Baptists are evangelicals. Not all evangelicals are Southern Baptists, but still that's where this research come from. Um, Lifeway is a good place to look for research on evangelicals. In 2018, they surveyed 1,000 evangelical pastors across the United States and found that 60% of them, so the clear majority of them said, their church has never practiced discipline on anyone for any reason. Members, staff, pastors of those churches certainly have done some kind of behaviors that they persist in that might need discipline. 60% of evangelical churches says we don't do that, and we've never done that. So interesting, right? Some churches do, though, right? If 60% aren't, 40% either they are currently or they have some historic memory of doing it. So how do evangelicals practice church discipline? Um, the, the, let me just back up a minute. The ones that don't, they're not being lazy. It's not that they're not caring about standards. It's them playing out one of their values that each individual hears from God alone. Almost that each person is responsible for their own learning to the degree that they are their own prophet. They wouldn't say it that way, but it is sort of what's happening. We've talked about this in past episodes and how they really, really value the attitude of you cannot tell me what to do, or I'm independent and do not need your authority. Go back and watch my video on, um, I think it's just called, I don't need your authority. This is one way we see those attitudes playing out is that church discipline mostly doesn't happen. People are expected to police themselves. Whether they do or not is a different question. However, so some of the churches do practice church discipline, about 40% who said that they do have some version of church discipline. Most of those said that they have used it in the past three years. Interesting, right? So of those that practice it, it's been practiced in recent memory. There is a slight difference between large evangelical churches, um, here defined as more than a thousand members, and smaller churches. The smaller evangelical churches, um, which actually, they grow fewer every year. More and more people leave the smaller churches, evangelical churches for the bigger churches. The small ones are far more likely to say that they have practiced some kind of church discipline it, especially in the last three years. The larger churches, they are just not as likely to do. It just doesn't work that way for them. Um, part of that is a function of the size of the church. If your church has 5,000 people who attend every Sunday morning, it's pretty easy to remain a stranger there for a very long time. No one is going to notice what's going on with you. you, Evangelicals choose churches based on preference, not based on location. So it's not like their neighbors are even necessarily members of their church. They could be doing all kinds of things. And, and in theory, nobody in their church even knows. So it's, it's not the big churches are, are bad and evil. It's, it's just hard. How do you, how do you stay in the lives of 5,000 people? Right. Um, 
here is where we see a big difference. In a Latter-day Saint church, anybody can ask for a meeting with the bishop. Um, and even if you don't have something specific you need to ask a meeting for, once a year, you're going to be invited into a tithing meeting at the very least. Every couple of years, you're going to be invited into a, a meeting about your temple recommend. It is, it's not unusual at all for a, for a Latter-day Saint individual or couple or family to sit down in private with their bishop. It just does not work that way in the larger evangelical churches, uh, which, which most of them are. Once a church gets over about 500 members on a Sunday, access to the pastoral leadership in that church really starts to diminish. Around the 500 member mark, they're frequently not even allowed to request a meeting with their pastor. He, he, the pastor, he might know many of the people's names, a really extraordinary one might say he knows everyone's name or at least every family name. Um, and, and most of them, I mean, they're people, they're people, people, right? So they're, they can recognize you on site, even if they don't know your name, and probably not having a, a private meeting with him. And once a church is at a thousand members or more, um, there, there is no way to do that. If an average member called up and said, hey, I'd like to have a meeting with my pastor, they're directed towards someone else, not the like main person who's in charge of their spiritual care. They're often told, why don't you meet with your small group leader who's just a, a volunteer, a, a peer who leads their like weekly Sunday school or their weekly like home Bible study group. Um some evangelicals can attend a church for a decade and never even meet their pastor, right? That's, it's something that they know and it's something that they accept and it's just how it is. Nobody has an expectation for it to be very different. So there's an article from a group called the Gospel Coalition, mostly evangelicals, written about a decade ago. So here they use the term Mormon, uh, appropriately because it's a 10-year-old article, um, and they're comparing evangelicals and Latter-day Saints. And they say, but compared to the Mormon experience, evangelical churches are a carnival ride, short services, low accountability, and rare church discipline. If you're a faithful Mormon, you are not living a 95% secular life like most evangelicals. So that's a quote about evangelicals from evangelicals. They recognize that there's some difference here in how people are um, helped to grow or help to address problems. So we're starting to see how some of these differences play out. Back to the evangelical churches who do practice some form of discipline. Some of them, I'll give you an example, the Evangelical Free Church that's a denomination. They use evangelical in their names, so you can be pretty sure most of their churches would identify as some version of evangelical. Um, they actually do have a formal process for, for church discipline that's pretty rigorous. It would, it would be comparable to ours, but it only applies to clergy. Other churches, more common examples, is they have an informal process where a church leader might use some kind of persuasion, 
um, to try and get a member of the church to correct some wrongs. They might use it um, some kind of exclusion approach where um, like an unmarried couple is living together and then they're told you either need to, to move out or get married. Otherwise, you can't um, teach Sunday school anymore. They certainly wouldn't be asked to leave the church. That's not, this is super unlikely to happen. So it's like, it's a light exclusion. Um, here is a, here's a bit of a, it's a cautionary tale. There's a very well-documented case um, that plays all of this out in the evangelical world. So Christianity Today, the, the major evangelical newspaper, they do a, um, they did a, a short podcast. Um, I think there's 10 episodes or so. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, and the entire narrative arc of those 10 episodes is to show what happens when not only does church discipline go wrong, but what happens when it's non-existent or when it's there and people can choose whether they listen to the recommendations or not. They tell a story of a church in Seattle called Mars Hill Church that was at one time the hottest thing in Seattle. My family and I were members there in the early days. Um, my son is a full-grown adult now. When we were there, he was a toddler, so about 20 years ago. Um, and Marcel was, was really was the place to be. It was the fastest growing church in America, primarily made up of young Seattle hipsters, early 2000s, right? But what happened was the pastor who founded the church, he went off the rails in a number of directions. That, all of that's going to, that requires too much detail that I, I'm not going to go into all of that here, but there were a number of issues going on with him that required some church discipline. The board of the church came to a decision that that pastor needed to step back. He needed to go through some um, rehabilitation work that he needed to be basically remediated, that he needed to correct some things in his character um, and they, they set out a plan of follow these steps and you have an on-ramp back into your leadership position. But until you do that, we are, we are not okay with you preaching or leading in this church. Well, at that time, that church was drawing 15,000 people a week, multiple locations in four states. And when the board wanted to discipline this pastor, initially he agreed to it. And then he very shortly realized he didn't have to. And he backed out of that. He decided that he would rather quit his role as a pastor than be disciplined by his church board. So he resigned, moved his family to Arizona, I think about eight years ago, he just starts another church. To this day, the Christian community in Seattle is impacted by that man's refusal to take accountability for his actions. Um, but in the evangelical world, if someone wants to, if your church wants to discipline you, all you do is move to a new church if you don't like it. 
the Marcellus scenario is a little bit extreme because he's a pastor and, you know, he moves out of town and starts a new church. In theory, he could have stayed in Seattle and started a new church, although he did significant damage. And I think that would have probably been harder for him, but there's no one to stop him. Um, moving from church to church to church because you don't like what you're being told. You don't like to have your behavior corrected. That, that happens all the time. Um I don't really have to learn anything from church discipline. In a Latter-day Saint congregation, this could not ever happen, right? If a bishop or a state president went off the rails, he can't just move to a new city and become bishop again, right? That information is going to follow him. We have a centrally organized church that just we're just set up in a way that is not going to allow for that, at least not based on the set policies. Has anyone ever sneaked through? Maybe, I don't know. Um, but we're not set up that way. Having some policies around stopping someone who refuses accountability is better than having no policies at all. Whether or not our policies have been perfectly followed and executed, that is a separate question. But I will stand by that statement. Having policies is better than not having them because the end result, if you don't have them, is that there is never a chance for behavior to get addressed. And at least if at least if you have policies and that's the normal thing that you do most of the time, behavior is going to get addressed where there are going to be some kind of consequences. But this Mars Hill case illustrates is that evangelicals have a decentralized leadership, Latter-day Saints having a centralized leadership, the level of accountability is different. In the evangelical world, you might occasionally hear about a pastor, like this Mars Hill pastor, getting disciplined. You are just super unlikely to hear about that with a member of their church, just an ordinary non-clergy person. Whereas if you've been in our Latter-day Saint church for any time at all, you've certainly heard of people who've had to go to a disciplinary council and, and they're just regular members. They're not even the, the top leadership. So it's really, it's, it's very, very different. On a lower level, not even a discipline level, if you don't like what your evangelical leader or pastor is saying, you just change churches. There, there's no process for for managing any of that. If a church leader is trying to hold you accountable for your behavior and you don't like it, you change churches and no one ever even knows. Pretty hard, pretty hard to do that in the Latter-day Saint world. Um, I will tell you this next bit with a little bit of trepidation, in part because it's a, it's a true story and involves, it involves some people I care about. I'm going to disguise some of the details here so that you would never figure out who they are. Um, and, you know, you have probably never heard someone say, I have a testimony of church discipline councils, but here you go. Um, I had to take the evangelical church where I grew up to court to hold them accountable for some things. I didn't want to. Tried for a very, very long, long time to find another way. Um, but the church refused to police itself, and so I employed the help of the secular courts to enforce some consequences for them. I'm glad I did it. 
and I'm very glad it's over. Um, it was really hard on me, to be honest. The church said things that um, were really, really hard to hear. Um, I, I did not like that process at all. It was, it was very hard on me. Contrast that with the experience of a friend. Um, he's a Latter-day Saint. He grew up in a, a faithful family from all appearances, big family. They were always at church, always doing things. Mom and dad both had various leadership roles. Um, my friend hadn't spoken to, to anyone about what his family was really like until he was in his late 30s. And he decided to start talking about how his dad had sexually abused him when he was growing up. He had a meeting with his siblings, found out he wasn't the only one, right? So the, the siblings and the cousins in that family banded together. They stood by their, their siblings and cousins, believed the victim, wanted to help make things right. The legal statute of limitations had long run out. No criminal options were open to them. No legal options were open to them that they could see. Um, it was really heartbreaking and frustrating for them. So their next move was to go to the bishop of the man who had done this abuse, my, the father of my friend. And within a very short amount of time, that man's stake held a disciplinary council. And he admitted to the abuse, at least to some degree. And he was disfellowshipped. If, if he would ever like to rejoin the church again, he would need approval from the first presidency. He's out. When I contrast that against my own experience, where the evangelical church couldn't even admit what had happened, and then when they were finally forced to, they blamed me for it. They weren't going to disfellowship anyone over that, and still to this day haven't even really condemned the people who were responsible. When I heard my friend's story and, and the disciplinary counsel of the, the father who had abused him, I understood why church discipline matters in a way that I never had before. I had to fight tooth and nail for decades. And only with the help of the secular courts did I get any resolve. And my friend's family that the stake of that abuser had a disciplinary counsel within a couple months. I mean, it's stunning to me. The church's actions took the feelings and experiences of the victims into consideration. Um, after, after I'd heard about this, I relayed the events to a friend who told me about an experience where the details were very different. They're totally different situations. But as another case where the feelings of the victim were prioritized, that the, the person in that situation was disfellowshipped and not allowed to come back into the church for a very long time. I know it doesn't always happen this way in our church. And you might have some stories in your own mind of how this has not worked well, but sometimes it works. Most of the time it works. It gives me great comfort to know that in our church, 
it, we at least strive to get this right. And we frequently do. I, I will never meet the men who sat on the disciplinary council for my friend's abuser. They live in a different state. I don't know their names. I have no idea who they who they are, and I never will know. But their actions of discipline against an abuser, that knit something back together in my heart. Even though it wasn't even my case, it was just my friend's case. It was really, really important to me. I cannot tell you how healing it was to see that discipline in action. Ah, oh, heavy Topic today, I hope this conversation helps you see and understand some of the differences between our two different churches and how we approach it. Join us next week. We'll take up a new topic. See you then.